You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Today I want to talk about healthcare and socialism. You know, there's a big movement right now with the current administration to proudly state that they are the most progressive administration this country has ever seen or will ever see. And what they're really saying is that we're moving towards more centralized government, more power in Washington, D.C., more decision-making by the country's elite, if you will, over regular citizens, telling us what we can and cannot do. Well, I want to connect socialism and health care. And one of the key connections in understanding that relationship is somebody who was highlighted during the Trump administration, early on in the Trump administration, and actually has a book written about how to change a country into a socialist environment. And that individual is Saul Alinsky. Saul Alinsky died about 43 years ago, but his writings have influenced those in the political control of our nation today. You might recall that Hillary Clinton did her college thesis on his writings, and Obama writes him about him in his book. He has a book called Rules for Radicals. It's available at every bookstore. You can order it online. I've read it. It outlines exactly where this administration is going and where the general movement in this country has been for a number of decades. Well, Saul Alinsky died on June 12, 1972. His education was at the University of Chicago, and the main two books that he's written are Rules for Radicals and Revile for Radicals. Now, anyone out there think that this stuff isn't happening in the, in the United States today? Well, he wrote about eight rules, and all eight rules are currently in play. And let me list them out for you so that you can clearly understand what's going on in our country. And it's about how to create a socialist state by Paul Alinsky. He says there are eight levels of control that must be obtained before you are able to create a socialist state. The first is the most important, health care. He says control health care and you control the people. Number two, poverty. Increase the poverty level as high as possible. Poor people are easier to control and will not fight back if you are providing everything for them to live. Recall during the Obama administration, poverty levels soared. People on food stamps soared. Whereas in the Trump administration, they came down. You would think coming down is a good thing, but not to socialists, not to the progressives who want to increase socialism as the backbone of this country. The third item to control in order to create a socialist state is debt. Increase the debt by an unsatiable level. That way you're able to increase taxes and this will produce more poverty. You get the gist of what's going on here? Create a problem, say you're going to solve it, and then exacerbate the problem. Number four, gun control. Remove the ability to defend themselves from the government. That way you're able to create a police state. 
exactly what this administration is trying to do in every way possible to eliminate the Second Amendment, a right to bear arms. Number five, welfare. Take control of every aspect of their lives, food, housing, income, and we've already mentioned health care. Number six, education. Take control of pe- what people read and listen to. Take control of what children learn in school. Boy, isn't that topical? Exactly what's happening with our education system, with big tech taking over control of what people can read and what they can listen to, and how they're supporting the democratic agenda. Education is the most critical thing, with teachers' unions controlling when kids can go back to school, even when the CDC has said it's perfectly acceptable for the kids to go back to school and for teachers to teach without vaccinations, and yet teachers want vaccinations before they go back to school. In fact, they want raises before they'll go back to school. So what's happened to our education system, which was number six on the Alinsky list. Number seven, religion. Remove the belief in God from the government and schools. Well, of course, in our Constitution, we say that your rights come from God, but if there is no God, then where do your rights come from? Obviously, on the progressive side, then, the the rights that you would experience, that you would be free to use however you can, would only come from government. And if they can give rights, they can take away rights. And eight, the last item, class warfare. Divide the people into the wealthy and the poor. This will cause more discontent, and it will be easier to take taxes from the wealthy and support with the support of the poor. In other words, create more poor, they become a majority they can then realize that they can steal from everybody else. And that's how you create the class warfare. Now, does anybody out there listening to this, does it sound like something that's happening in your community? Does it sound like something that's happening in the United States? Well, keep in mind that Alinsky merely simplified Vladimir Lenin's original scheme for world conquest by communism under Russian rule. Now, people who were supporting this, Lenin had a name for them. He described his converts to this kind of radical, socialist, Marxist philosophy as useful idiots. The useful idiots have destroyed every nation in which they have seized power and control. There's no history of communism, socialism, Marxism actually working in the real world, except to create a concentration of power for a few elite. They enjoy it. And they can control everybody else. And meek people will fall into that trap. I only hope that the people of the United States are not part of that sheep mentality where they only accept what the government and a few people, bureaucrats, elected officials who follow this philosophy will give them. It is presently happening in the United States at an alarming rate if you just look around. All those eight items that I mentioned. So... If people hearing this message and they still will say nothing about what's going on and fight this, they are really part of Lenin's useful idiots. We cannot allow this country to be part of the useful idiot movement around the world that has failed it every time it's been tried. We have to be vigilant about this new administration that is moving rapidly to kill jobs to encourage countries like Iran by removing sanctions, by 
funding those subversive organizations by kowtowing to groups and organizations that have been undermining the safety and security of our children, of our educational system, and we certainly don't want to turn over our health care to this group of individuals. Too much of our health care is already in the hands of government authorities telling us what we can buy and what it's going to cost. And all they're trying to do under the new health care program, which we'll talk about in the rest of this hour, is to subsidize more and more of your health care so that people feel grateful that the government is somehow paying for this with somebody else's money and that we're getting some undeserved benefit. Or maybe some people feel they deserve the benefit of getting free health care paid for by somebody else. They don't have to take any personal responsibility. They don't have to take charge of their own life. They don't have to make choices for healthy living. They just assume that somebody else is going to pay the bill for whatever problems and issues they have. Well, health care is the number one reason on this list to become a socialist society. Obama knew that. He was a student of Alinsky. He started his campaign talking to the socialists in this country that were supported and educated and read about Alinsky. It's why the country, I think, rejected Hillary Clinton as president because she was clearly more outward in her open borders and her policies that would change the Supreme Court that would move us towards a socialist society which we could not prevent if we had Supreme Court that was sympathetic to the kind of movements and government control that was well underway. Thank goodness Donald Trump changed that trajectory. But we're now in another fight for the next at least two if not four years or more to prevent our country from going down this road of socialism. Donald Trump in one of his State of the Union speeches said that this country is not going to go into socialism during his watch. And he backed us up from that movement quite a bit, which is why he was so demonized. But now we've started back down that road again. And his policies that created more of a free market, energy independence, this country at the best level of unemployment that we've ever seen, of people actually reliving and living the American dream inviting immigrants to come to this country that have a dream to assimilate, to be productive citizens, to add to our culture and to absorb the cultures here, to create a culture from around the world, but not one that comes in here illegally. His big battle on the border demonstrated all that, that he wasn't against immigrants, he was for immigrants, legal immigrants. So, Let's continue this discussion, and I want to have a broadcast um, as part of this that I listened to a while back. It's from an organization, a healthcare organization called the Galen Institute, and it has a couple of people on there that I'll introduce in the next session about how in the world we move forward with healthcare reform that's free market, that's not government-controlled, that's not based upon the idea that we want the government to solve all our problems. We want the government to distribute the efficiency of health care services, the cost of health care services, because we know what has happened in other countries 
what has happened is you wind up with long waiting lines. You wind up with poor quality. You wind up with providers that are not the best entering into the system. You wind up with research that lacks the ability to develop the drugs and medications and technology to help serve the community. So we've got to focus on health care as the number one issue to fight back on socialism since it is the number one issue that socialists are trying to do to really grab hold of this country and move us towards deeper and deeper into a socialist Marxist environment. It's the biggest thing we've got to prevent along, in my opinion, with the educational issues. So let's take a break and we're going to come back and I'm going to share with you some experts on what's happening with this administration and its ideals and ideas to moving us towards more government control of the healthcare system. Be right back. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. Hey guys, it's Minister Frankie with Shine His Light Ministries. It's getting cold outside and winter is coming. It's time to shine a little light on our friends on the street. We're collecting blankets and coats for the homeless all winter long. Please donate by going to our website at www.shinehislightministry.com or text 770-655-8055. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Let's continue our discussion led by Tom Giovanni and Grace Marie and talking about the Biden administration and what they're really trying to do with health care. So, Tom, good morning. Take it over. Uh, my name is Tom Giovanetti. I'm the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. So let me first, let me turn it over to Grace Marie. Many of you know her. She's a longtime healthcare policy expert and founder and president of the Galen Institute. So Grace Marie, thanks so much for helping to put this program together with Dr. Matthews. And thank you for running it in his absence. And uh, take it away, please. Thank you so much, Tom. And thank you and IPI and especially Merrill. He, he really did all the heavy lifting in putting together this forum. So we're really sorry he's not able to join us. But And just to give you a little bit of a sense of where we are, as you know, President Biden was seen during the presidential primary campaign as really the more moderate in his position on health reform, while most of the other Democratic presidential candidates endorsed Medicare for all. He said, nope, we're going to expand and build on Obamacare, something that he's proud of, having helped pass it when he was vice president in the, in the Obama administration. So he sees that as a more moderate position. I think one of the things we'll explore today is whether or not that really is true or whether or not it's just another stepping stone and a different way of getting to greater, much greater government control of our health sector. And we could not be 
more fortunate than to have Brian Blaze and Doug Badger, both senior fellows at the Galen Institute, to talk with us today about what they see coming. They both have served in senior positions in the White House, Trump, the Trump administration with Biden most recently, and with Doug serving as a senior advisor to President George W. Bush. Both of them were hugely influential in major public policy initiatives that lead to choice and competition. There have, all, there have been a lot of legislative obstacles, but they have done everything they can both to get legislation through when possible and also to, to use the tools of the administration to begin to open up the opportunities and options. So we're going to talk a lot about that and um, talk about the um, the agenda of the Biden administration. So let's begin by talking about the big picture. Doug, I wonder if you could just give us kind of an overview. What does President Biden mean when he says expand and build on Obamacare? We're going to get a lot into the details later, but I just sort of give us the big picture, the lay of the land. Well, the, uh, thank you, Grace. When, when President Biden says he's going to build on Obamacare, to sum it up from a somewhat acerbic perspective, what he means is making a costly, inefficient, and suffocating regulatory contrivance more costly, less efficient, uh, and even more uh, suffocating. He um, Largely, this will take the form, and we'll go into this in much more detail uh, in a bit, but largely this will take the form of enlarging uh, the Obamacare subsidies uh, for people who already get them, making people in the two highest income quintiles eligible for uh, Obamacare subsidies, uh, giving everyone uh, on uh, unemployment insurance free Obamacare through the exchanges uh, and otherwise um, in, in, enlarging the, uh, uh, the, the reach of, uh, of the government. The understanding just why this is considered moderate is, is really goes to the core of how the left really has been successful uh, and conservatives have been much less uh, successful in influencing the course of health care policy. Progressives begin with a core belief uh, that government can allocate medical goods and services more efficiently and more fairly can market. Uh, it's a belief that they've uh, cherished for more than a century, and one they cling to despite all evidence of the, of the contrary. So they begin with a, with a shared assumption. But secondly, they have something that conservatives uh, often haven't shown, and that is patience. Uh, progressives have been at the single-payer Medicare for All idea for more than a century now, they really didn't achieve much success until the mid-60s with Medicare. And at each step along the way, they've had to say yes to incremental steps, some of which actually conflict with their core views. Uh, as we'll see, the, uh, the bill that uh, Congress is cons uh, working on right now to expand Obamacare is actually a windfall for the health insurance industry, which those who are committed to Medicare for all would destroy. Uh, but nevertheless, they managed to keep discipline and move toward government control 
in a very systematic and uh, they play the, the long game with, uh, with health care policy. And so what we're seeing is what President Biden would call sort of a moderate approach. But as we begin to break it down, we'll see that it actually will have a profound effect in enlarging government's control over the allocation of medical goods and services. Thank you, Doug. I wonder, Brian, if you would drill down for us a little bit and talk more about the specifics of what we know about what President Biden is is proposing so far. Sure. So I think before I do that, it's crucial to sort of know where we are with Obamacare. So when the law was passed in 2010, if you go back to what the Democrats were talking about, they really promoted the idea of these health insurance exchanges where people would be able to go and purchase coverage um, that would be affordable in a competitive marketplace. It was by far the number one uh, benefit of the law that the Democrats talked about at the time. And the reality is that those exchanges and those policies that sort of complicated uh, regulatory mandate subsidy structure hasn't worked. Um, they were, uh, if you look at projections, they estimated we'd have about 25 million people enrolled in the exchanges right now. We have about 10 million people. Total individual market enrollment has increased by about 2 million since um, pre-ACA levels. Now, that's a 2 million increase, and we're spending $50 billion a year in premium subsidies. That worked out to $25,000 per newly insured individual in the individual market. If you account for the fact that there's been a slight decline in employer-sponsored insurance, which is attributable to the ACA, you basically had no change in private health insurance enrollment, despite spending almost about $50 billion in subsidies. What is the ACA mostly? It's mostly a Medicaid expansion. Um, about uh, three dozen states expanded have expanded Medicaid, and we've had a decrease in the number of uh, uninsured by probably about 12 to 13 million overall, largely through the Medicaid expansion. Now, what is sort of, if you can look about the, the main goal of the Biden administration right now and the Democrats in Congress is to get more people enrolled in Obamacare, in both the exchanges and in Medicaid. So um, in the exchanges, they're, uh, like Doug previewed, they're going after their main vulnerability that in people that don't get subsidies aren't purchasing this coverage. So instead of like looking at um, ways that would reduce premiums and make plans more affordable overall, they're just pumping up the subsidies. Um, so they have a proposal that significantly expands the subsidies, both for individuals that already receive subsidies to purchase insurance. Plus, right now the subsidies are capped at 400% of the poverty line. They would lift that in essence, you have some uh, families that make uh, $200,000 or more that would now qualify for these subsidies to purchase insurance in the individual market. CBO, so they've, they've limited this to two years. Um, and CBO produced an analysis um, uh, last week, and they estimate that the total uh, uh, spending increase from this is going to be about $35 billion, um, with, like Doug said, two-thirds of 
the spending increase going to people who are already covered. Um, and it'll bring a few, uh, I think a million or two more individuals into the market who don't have insurance. They're also looking at ways to make Medicaid expansion uh, more attractive to the states that haven't expanded yet. Um, so there are some big states like Florida and Texas that haven't expanded. And when we get into talking about the uh, Medicaid expansion, we can talk about some of the reasons those states um, haven't expanded their Medicaid program. But they, um, they, there's, there's a variety of things that they're looking at that would make it uh, more attractive to states to expand Medicaid. Wow, that was a great summary. Um, I do want to thank um, Tom Giovanni, uh, president of the Institute for Policy Innovation, for uh, leading this discussion and for Grace Marie for really being the moderator. We have two great experts here, uh, Brian Blaze and Doug Badger, both of which have worked in Republican administrations. As I think was mentioned, Doug worked with the um, Bush administration and Brian worked with the Trump administration. Now, Doug said that the real issue here that we ought to be looking at is the expansion of subsidies to people who haven't gotten it before, the expansion of subsidies for people who have been getting subsidies, but because health care gets more and more expensive and you want to lock these people in to uh, supporting Democrats, increase the subsidies. Well, that was the game plan we know all along. Also, some new twists of giving free health care to anybody who's unemployed. Boy, won't that be a reason to stay unemployed and be uh, so declared. Why go out for a job when you get $20,000, $25,000 of free health care coverage while you're unemployed? And it's clear that what the administration is trying to do in terms of the insurance companies being the, if you will, typically the opposition, not wanting government to get into the health care business and take it over, uh, they want to buy off the insurance companies by paying them to be the administrators, if you will. Take the insurance companies out of the risk assumption business and put all that risk on the government. Well, you know, Marx used to say that capitalists will sell you the rope to hang them. And that's basically what this administration is doing. They're buying off people. They're trying to give people more money. People who make above 400% of the federal poverty level. Well, most people don't know what the federal poverty level is. Well, for a family of four, 400% of the family poverty level is above $100,000. So we're going to now extend that and provide for people making two, $300,000, some level of subsidy for their health care. Instead of trying to make health care more affordable, trying to eliminate the unnecessary costs and the waste and abuse that goes on in government programs, we're going to expand government programs and just give people more money to cover that waste and abuse. We're going to wind up spending more and more money on health care and not enough on roads and infrastructure and modernization and technology and research is what's going to happen. Well, great start to this discussion. Let me take a break and we'll come back in just a few minutes and talk more about health care, socialism and this new Biden administration. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. 
Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday, 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. Hey guys, it's Minister Frankie with Shine His Light Ministries. It's getting cold outside and winter is coming. It's time to shine a little light on our friends on the street. We're collecting blankets and coats for the homeless all winter long. Please donate by going to our website at www.shinehislightministry.com or text 770-655-8055. Want to give your family or loved one the perfect gift? Then go online and check out the TornadoBodyDryer.com. I love mine and the warm heat air massage it gives me after my shower. The Tornado Body Dryer is super. You'll love it and you'll love having one in your shower. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. Let's continue with this discussion on healthcare, socialism, and the Biden administration. Uh, Grace Marie, maybe you could start by talking about the impact of Obamacare and maybe get some of our experts to talk a little bit more about the time frame of what the Biden administration is talking about doing and where we might be going uh, over the uh, short term, if not some of the long term. Looking at the impact of Obamacare, we have seen that because of all the requirements on how rich the benefit packages have to be, that the prices have really priced millions of people out of the market. So when you look at one of the reasons that they are doing, they're proposing increasing the, the, the eligibility is because so many people simply can't afford the insurance even unless they're heavily subsidized. Now, let's talk a little bit about the time frame. What parts of this plan do you think they're going to try to push through in this so-called COVID relief bill, which is a minority, a very small percentage of the funding is actually for COVID? Do Republicans and moderates have any say? A lot of people are very worried about the budget implications as well. So sort of a multi-part question. Yeah, uh, just uh, uh, by way of process, so... Uh, Congress passed a budget resolution earlier this year and told the various committees to write legislation that would increase the deficit by an estimated $1.9 trillion over the next year or two. Um, that is it's called a budget reconciliation bill. Uh, these, these bills that uh, people are working on that then includes the Obamacare subsidies and the Medicaid expansions that that Brian just reviewed Um, and they expect to they hope to pass this through the House next week and uh, through the Senate uh, very shortly thereafter budget reconciliation bill as many of you may recall cannot be filibustered in the Senate Uh, there are limitations on amendments and um, it can pass by simple majority including uh, if necessary, a vote by Vice President Harris uh, to make a 51 to 50 majority. So 
there it is you know democrats have to hold their line on this because they have small a small majority in the house and obviously a razor thin one in the senate but as far as the influence of moderate republicans uh as as people may recall 10 uh republican moderate senators met with the president a couple of weeks ago and tried to say can we can we work together on a package uh that would get bipartisan support um, the answer was no. Uh, they are going to try to pass this on partisan lines. I don't think there's going to be um, much opportunity for uh, for compromise. Although, again, if they start to lose Democratic support, uh, they may need to reach out to Republicans, and there may be some opportunity for discussion. I certainly don't think that's very likely. As far as the budget impact, um it actually cuts both ways. I mean, there used to be a group of people that cared about the budget. Last year, the federal government spent twice as much as it collected in taxes. Twice as much as it collected in taxes. And we're on a pathway to do that again this year. Certainly, this $1.9 trillion bill will push it in that direction. So there may be some concern somewhere about the national debt, uh, but it doesn't seem to be prominent in either party. Um, and it's, in fact, the argument is the other way. Some people are arguing that this is too small, that the risk is that a stimulus bill of this sort won't do enough to uh, generate uh, a, a recovery. And I would remind you that uh, 12 years ago when there was a similar conversation about uh, President Obama's first stimulus bill, uh, President Biden said uh, in a question and answer with himself, uh, quote, you're telling me we have to go spend money to keep from going bankrupt? The answer to that is yes, that's what I'm telling you. Uh, so Vice President Biden believed that 12 years ago, and President Biden believes that more now, that we need to spend our way out of our uh, debt problem. So, Doug, what of the of the parts of the Biden health reform unquote plan? Do you think they're going to try to push through with on this simple majority reconciliation one point nine trillion deficit spending bill? Well, I think Brian's outlined that very well. You have increases in Obamacare subsidies, most of whom most of which will go to people who already get Obamacare subsidies, some of which will go to people in the top two income quintiles. Um, the effect on the insurance coverage, as Brian said, is, is uh, relatively minimal. We're increasing Obamacare spending by about a third. It would be $17 billion per year in addition to the $50 billion we already spend, and the net increase in newly insured is about $1.3 million, according to, um, according to CBO. As far as giving free Obamacare to people on unemployment, CBO says basically those people already have coverage. They're just going to go from private coverage into the, the, the government-subsidized coverage. Uh, private sector can't compete with free. Um, and uh, 
we'll see what happens on the Medicaid front as these inducements are put in place. What they're not trying to do in this bill is, one, do these permanently. These are basically a two-year extension. They have to make it permanent. That will probably be put off to a second reconciliation bill. And, of course, the other piece on the agenda, the public option, um, the, there's a big question as to whether you can do that in the uh, reconciliation process. Um, they're not going to test that assumption now. They probably will later in the year. Right now they have a bill that absolutely delights the medical industrial complex. Is the same crew that passed Obamacare in 2009, the insurance industry, the hospitals, and others. Uh, in this case, uh, unlike them, the Chamber of Commerce is lining up behind the expansions that are on this bill uh, that Congress is currently writing. Uh, if they move to the public option, that will change and they'll run into resistance. So that's going to face both a procedural hurdle that they might not be able to do it through reconciliation and potentially a political hurdle that uh, the groups that are backing them now will draw the line at the public option. So much like Obamacare, the, the coverage expansions, the new spending, for many people it's going to replace private coverage with publicly subsidized coverage, which I think does point to the agenda that you all talked about earlier, that there really is an agenda to put more and more people on on the public dole one way or another. So I want to get to Brian in a minute to talk about, about Medicaid, but I wonder, Doug, if you could just give us a quick description of what this public option is and what it would do if it were enacted to the private health insurance market. Well, the, the, the public option, as it's called, would be a government-run insurance company. Um, that's not exactly um, – the government obviously doesn't compete on the same ground as, uh, as insurers. But the idea would be that this would be an offering on the in exchange alongside private health insurance. Now, the one place we've seen this happen is in the state of Washington. And there, the idea of creating a public option was resisted by hospitals, doctors, and insurance companies. Um, but they all got in the room and worked out a compromise. For hospitals, the problem is that government rates, particularly through Medicare, are much lower than commercial rates. Um, they argue that they can't make a go of it, that they actually lose money on Medicare patients. Um, and so they did not want to accept uh, Medicare rates. For insurance companies, of course, they said if uh, they are paying these low rates, their premiums will be lower than what we can charge, and therefore they're going to take our business away. So they got together and they worked out a, a payment rate that was acceptable to hospitals, and they said to the insurance companies, look, we'll contract with you to run this so you won't have to accept any insurance risk. You just get paid a fee from the state uh, to actually run the public option. Uh, I think if they ultimately do 
uh, move in, in uh, sort of creating public option in Congress, it probably will look a, a lot like what happened in Washington State, where you can co-opt the interest groups and convince them that they'll do just as well under this as under as under the current regime. But for now, uh, those groups are uh, maintaining strong opposition to any sort of public option. And many people do really fear that if you have the public option competing with private plans that don't have, have, have the advantages even in a more modest way, that it really is a slow road to getting rid of the private health insurance market. Let me comment on what we're hearing so far. Wrap up this segment of our program. What we're hearing is that the public option is probably not going to be part of the $1.9 trillion uh, stimulus, uh, COVID stimulus bill that we're looking at over the next uh, couple of weeks. But it's going to come back. And this is where that patience issue that was mentioned earlier, I think, by Doug comes into play. The Democrats are willing to be patient. They're looking for their spots. It's kind of like a, a zoning issue that some of you may be familiar with in your own areas. All you have to do is lose once. The other side can wait for the right time, the right uh, city council, the right approval, the right study, and you've got to fight it every time it comes up. And that's sort of what's happening with the uh, nationalization of healthcare. And we also know that what's happening is that the insurance companies who have never really made a lot of money off of the risk assumption that they take, the risk premium as it's usually referred to, is relatively small and minor for the insurance industry. Where they really make their money is offering up services, legal services, actuarial services, printing services, consulting services, advice and support. That's where they make their money. And I think the insurance industry, which is really designed to spread risk, has been getting out of risks for a long time because most of their clients have been moving towards what's called self-insurance, where the the employer takes the risk and the insurance company just provides services. That's sort of where I see us moving across the board. The only place insurance companies have ever really taken risk directly is on individual policies. Even small groups as low as 15 lives have been moving to self-insurance arrangements. So let's take a final break here for this third segment, and let's come back with our final program in just a few minutes after this commercial break. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Hey, guys, it's Minister Frankie with Shine His Light Ministries. It's getting cold outside and winter is coming. It's time to shine a little light on our friends on the street. We're collecting blankets and coats for the homeless all winter long. Please donate by going to our website at www.shinehislightministry.com or text 770-655-8055. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. 
Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio and Healthcare Insight for the final segment this week. Um, Grace Marie and panel, would you get into a little bit more of a discussion to wrap up this final segment on um, uh, Medicaid expansion and the potential for Medicare expansion, especially to lower ages? I know that's been proposed, and I'd like to know what your um, opinions are on how these will crowd out the uh, not only the private sector of health insurance, but how it will create an impact, an adverse impact on the poor that are already getting, uh, the poor that are getting Medicaid, excuse me, and the elderly, elderly that are getting Medicare. Uh, clearly, some of these expansions and more government involvement is not going to help with um, the services that people will need and the services that are provided by our medical community. Give us some insight to all these areas, please. So, Brian, you mentioned earlier that the, the real um, effect of Obamacare has been to put millions more people on Medicaid. I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about um, the basics of Medicaid, why this is not a good idea, how it fits into the program that President Obama is ta- President Biden is talking about. Sure. So Medicaid um, was created, again, in the mid-1960s, same legislation that created Medicare. It's a federal-state partnership, um, and traditionally it served uh, certain categories of low-income enrollees, low-income children, low-income pregnant women, uh, low-income seniors, low-income individuals with disability. Uh, The key to sort of understanding the economics of the Medicaid program is that the federal government prov- provides an open-ended reimbursement of state uh, medical expenditures. So uh, prior to sort of for those traditional populations, if a state spends $100, um, the federal government will come in and cut the state a check for, on average, about $60. Um, what Obamacare did was create a new class of enrollees in Medicaid, sort of this able-bodied, working-age adult population, and they changed the dynamic. They changed the economics because they had they put in place a much higher reimbursement rate for that population. So that reimbursement rate. So the expansion started in 2014. For the first three years, the federal government paid 100% of the cost of the expansion, and then starting in 2017, the federal reimbursement rate declined. And in 2020, it reached 90%. So right now, the federal government pays 90% of um, of state expenditures on the expansion population. Um, and even so, one of the uh, sort of perverse things of this open-ended reimbursement, and this this has gone back decades, it predates Obamacare, is that when the federal government tells states that it's um, uh, just going to cut them a check based on their spending on Medicaid, states can come up with artificial expenditures. 
So in effect, telling the federal government that they're spending more on Medicaid than they actually are because they've designed these accounting gimmicks. So the federal government, in essence, is providing states money for nothing uh, on top of sort of what the uh, what the statute, uh, the statutory design is. Another um, thing I should say that the, the reimbursement rate for the traditional population varies by um, the wealth of the state. So the design was to provide more federal support for poorer states who were less able to finance health care and long-term care needs of these more vulnerable populations. That's the theory. Now, it hasn't worked out like that in practice. In practice, um, wealthier states have, um, have spent much more generously through the Medicaid program and as a result, they receive far more in federal funding uh, per, pe- per I- individuals enrolled in Medicaid than uh, less wealthy states. So there's huge inequities across states in sort of federal support for lower income populations. What we saw with Obamacare is that um, the incentives sort of played out the way you would expect. States got 100% reimbursement for the expansion population. They had very little incentive to care whether enrollees Medicaid were eligible for the program. Um, and they, uh, uh, and this has been confirmed by numerous government audits. They basically, um, uh, didn't pay any attention to ensure that only people who met the eligibility criteria, um, would be enrolled in the program. So you have, uh, just last November, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services releasing a uh, report that shows that improper spending in the Medicaid program is now more than one out of every $5 um, for an improper payment rate in excess of 21%. And even that's an understatement because they haven't properly uh, reviewed all the states yet. Um, In fact, improper um, Medicaid spending, so this is spending in violation of program rules, exceeds $100 billion. And that is driven by the expansion. So what do you think that the Biden administration is going to do specifically? The 100% um, paying states 100% if they, ones who haven't expanded enrolled, sign up? So there's, there's, there's been, um, there's about a dozen states that haven't expanded their Medicaid program yet. And they haven't expanded their Medicaid program uh, for, for a variety of reasons. One of the main reasons um, uh, not for states not to expand their Medicaid programs, in addition to sort of the unsustainable budget pressure that they get and, and enrollment and spending in all states that have expanded is, is off the charts. Um, but it really does create a major inequity um, when you have the government uh, paying greater rates or sort of this able-bodied working-age population than it does for traditional uh, Medicaid enrollees. You know, there's only so many healthcare resources um, that that providers can supply to individuals, and when you have this sort of crush of people coming into um, the medical uh, system, um, it does crowd out services for uh, these traditional Medicaid population. And we've seen um, uh, academic studies that have shown that the quality of care for sort of this traditional Medicaid population has declined in states that have adopted the expansion. Um, that said, it is um, uh, it is a priority of uh, the Democrats at the federal level and in many state capitals to get states to adopt 
Medicaid expansion. Um, and there has been some success in the last couple of years with a referendum put on the ballot um, in states that hadn't expanded to get the, to, to take this question to the voters. And you've had some very close um, uh, uh, ballot initiatives that have adopted or states have adopted Medicaid expansion. Um, this most recent uh, legislation uh, that has passed out of the Energy and Commerce Committee would increase states' federal reimbursement rate for all their Medicaid populations by 5% two-year period for states that adopt the expansion. Um, there's other proposals that I've seen that would um, uh, allow states that adopt the expansion just to have the federal government cover 100% of the costs of the expansion. Um, uh, for a few years. So that's going to present um, challenges in, in many state capitals across the country that haven't expanded back. So I think we can anticipate have seeing taxpayer money used to bribe the states that haven't expanded, including Texas, to, to expand Medicaid. But I think the point that you're making that we have made from the beginning is that by putting so many people on Medicaid, including people who have other options for coverage, Putting them on this program does make it much more difficult for people who have no other options. Moms, babies, disabled, uh, the disabled, others who are the poor constituency for Medicaid. It makes it much more difficult for them to get access to physicians. I think there's some parallels here also, Doug, with uh, the proposal to expand Medicare to allow people who are 55, 60 uh, to, to buy into Medicare? How would that work? Well, yeah, you're exactly right. Remember when we uh, I talked at the outset about the goal of the left is, has never changed uh, in terms of having the government fund all uh, and control the allocation of all medical goods and services, and that Medicare was a compromise uh, back in the mid-60s. And over all of these many years that have uh, intervened, uh, they have never reduced the Medicare age to 65. Back when people were concerned about uh, deficits and debt, uh, the idea was we should raise the retirement age because at the time, life expectancies, at the time Medicare was enacted, life expectancies were lower. And so we're supporting an ever-growing number of people as baby boomers retire for an ever-lengthening set of years, which is why Medicare is um, slated to become insolvent by 2024. So now we go in the opposite direction, and the direction that the founders of Medicare first envisioned, that we begin to creep that age uh, downward. Uh, President Biden has called for bringing it down to 60. Others have uh, called it, including some conservatives, have called for reducing it to, uh, to age 55. Now, the first thing uh, you've got to understand about this when they say reducing the Medicare eligibility age is that this is not Medicare as we know it. Medicare is financed uh, for the uh, Part A, the hospital inpatient portion, by payroll taxes that workers pay. And those payroll taxes, as I mentioned, are uh, not adequate to sustain the program for more than, a, than another two or three years. So you can't put more people suddenly on that uh, financing system. Secondly, the premiums are subsidized by about 75% uh, out of out of general revenue, uh, and you've got to you, so you've got to figure out how do we finance this. 
basically through debt. I mean, the government would would have to borrow more in order to do the Medicare expansion. You couldn't fund it out of payroll taxes. You'd have to set premiums uh, at a rate that um, that made sense, uh, both from a fiscal perspective and from the perspective of attracting people. But you would think that if they're able to do this, uh, employers would try to offload more of their uh, older workers onto uh, the Medicare, uh, onto the Medicare program and out of their um, employer-sponsored coverage. The rub on this, again, is the question of how much do hospitals and doctors get paid? Hospitals in particular do not want to have another large influx of people uh, that are paying the Medicare rate as opposed to the commercial insurance rate. Uh, and they have the political heft to do that. But, of course, the more that this so-called Medicare program uh, pays the, uh, the hospitals, that's the, the, the more expense that either goes to the federal government in terms of uh, more uh, debt or to the individuals who participate in terms of higher premiums. So squaring that circle, keeping the hospitals happy, um, but and at the same time adding people to a program that is on the verge of insolvency, uh, that's the big challenge they're going to face. And uh, again, they're not tackling it in this bill, in the $1.9 bill that Congress is looking at now. But I think we can expect to see them um, try to make an effort, try to make a run at this later this year. Wow, what a great panel. I really appreciate everybody's ideas, thoughts, comments, insights um, for our audience out here. This has uh, been a great uh, presentation. I really want to thank the um, Institute uh, for Policy Innovation and Tom Giovanni and Grace Marie Turner at the Galen Institute, as well as uh, Doug Badger and Brian Blaze. I really appreciate the insights, and hopefully that uh, we can prevent um, socialism from creeping further into the control of our health care and giving politicians that much more power and influence over our lives. Join us next week. This is Ron Bachman signing off for America's Web Radio program, Healthcare Insight. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.